All right, do we have any uh, chess players out there? Anybody like chess? Okay, uh, like, a, like she's excited, like enthusiastic chess player. We've got two chess players. We could just match you guys up, actually. Uh, two chess players in the room, and then a bunch of you that are afraid to admit it. Maybe. Uh, I'm not a chess player. I, I know the rules of chess, but I'm terrible at it. But I thought about this analogy, and two of you in the room will appreciate this analogy. The rest of you just hang in there with me. Uh, just imagine that everybody in the world was crazy about chess. All right, so just imagine it was the game, like there was no other game. So you know how SEC football is in the South? And you know how um, the other football, European football, is in Europe? This would be even more so. Just pretend, all right, that chess was the game. In fact, it, it, chess was so popular that just imagine that everybody would sort of work their schedules around like a daily time of the day, like maybe lunch break or afternoon break or something where they would play chess. And just imagine that the better you were at chess, the more honor and recognition you received in the society. So, you know, the people that were famous and celebrities were not the actors, you know, were not the football players. They were the best chess players. You know, it takes a little imagination to, like, imagine this, right? Just imagine that even down at, like, the local level that all of us would, would, would kind of, like, rank ourselves. You know, it's not about how good-looking you are, how much money you make, or, you know, the, having the big house or the fancy car. It's about how good are you at chess, Right? And just imagine that our whole society was sort of revolving around this game. Now, let me stretch your imagination even further. Imagine that the inventor of chess, whom I don't even think we know who it is, right? This is like an ancient game. Imagine the inventor of chess suddenly shows up through like a time warp or something, right? You're with me? Of course, realistic, not. But imagine he shows up and he, he loves our enthusiasm for the game. But after watching a few, a few, a few chess matches, he, he says, stop the presses. I never intended the game to be played this way. You've been playing it all wrong for all these hundreds of years or thousands of years or whatever. In fact, when I designed the game, I designed for the winners to be the ones that could most efficiently lose their own pieces. <laughs> and the losers were the ones that were forced to take other people's pieces. And so the ones that you're honoring as the best chess players are actually the losers. And the ones that you've been scoring that don't have any status in your culture, the, the losers are actually the winners. Now imagine if he turned the game up on its head. You know what would happen? All the people in power, the people with influence, the best chess players... They would marginalize the creator of chess. You know, they would find some excuse. Well, he, he couldn't have really created chess. Like, there's no such thing as a time travel. This guy's an imposter. It couldn't be it. No matter how much evidence he would give them that he really was the inventor of chess, they would shut him down. They would marginalize him. They might even, you know, give him the axe. Because nobody wants to change the rules of a game that they love. Nobody wants to relearn something. In fact, you might hear it on the streets, well, we don't want to play backwards chess. Hate to break it to you, but they're already playing backwards chess. They don't want to get right back up. They don't want to get right side up. They're playing upside down. Now, this is exactly what happened when the creator of the universe in flesh, Jesus Christ, came on the earth. And he started saying, listen, the kingdom of heaven is now here. It's at hand. It's emerging. It's coming. And therefore, you need to change. You need to repent. And you need to believe the good news about this kingdom. And he started teaching about the kingdom. And everything he taught seemed to say the, the operating principles that we've been basing life on and, and standards of who's great and who's low and what's right and what's wrong, some of these things were getting flipped upside down 
But if you remember, this is the king of the universe saying this, you have to start thinking, well, what's really upside down? Maybe we're the ones that have been playing upside down. And maybe what Jesus is talking about is actually right side up. And so all throughout his teaching, and and really over the last eight months as we've studied the life of Jesus through the Gospel of Mark, we've seen over and over and over, he's constantly turning paradigms upside down. He redefines for us who is clean and who is unclean. He redefines for us what true wealth is. Remember, he tells that rich man, sell everything you have and come follow me and then you'll have true wealth. You see, that's upside down. He tells the most religious people of the day, that they're the ones that need to repent the most. He's constantly turning things upside down. Now, theologians have a word for this. They call it reversal language, and it's a characteristic of Jesus' teaching. All throughout, he says, blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are those who are persecuted. You know what blessed means in this context? It means they're well off. They're happy. How could this be? How could this great reversal be true? We have to remember, Jesus wasn't just a contrarian or some revolutionary thinker. He's the creator of life. And he's coming and he's speaking into how life is to operate, but has been inverted upside down through sin. And so you read enough about Jesus' teaching, you start to realize we are living, y'all, in an upside-down kingdom. And there are many things that you read of Jesus that don't make sense in an upside-down kingdom. They don't make sense if your paradigm is like our paradigm is, which honestly, we're a part of this culture, we're a part of this world, we can't help to have be enculturated by it. So the major lesson from this series is not just, hey, believe in Jesus in the sense of have right doctrine and right theology, that's a big part of it. But the subtitle for our series, Following the Servant King, the subtitle is How Jesus' Life Redefines Our Own. How Jesus' Life Actually Turns Our Lives Back right side up. And so one reason I love this text this morning is it speaks both to the theology part, the doctrine part. We've got substitutionary atonement. We've got this language of ransom and we'll get into all that. But it also talks about the idea that this should change the way we live. We are to actually not be served anymore. We are to be servants. So we're going to dive into this passage and I would say this as you Read it. If you're not challenged by it, you're not actually understanding it. This text will speak both to how we should believe and how we should live, both as followers of Jesus Christ. So here's the outline, all right? I'm going to talk about, I've got three main ideas. The problem with the right side up kingdom, there is a problem with it. The call to live in the right side up kingdom. And thirdly, the only way into the right side up kingdom. So that's where we're going. Let's talk about the problem with the right side up kingdom. Verses 32 to 41. Now Sharon's already read it. I'm going to go back and read it again in pieces and explain some things as we go. So let's look at verse 32. They were on the road going up to Jerusalem. Jerusalem's elevated. You're always going to go up to Jerusalem. It's on the top of a a hill, a series of mountains. And Jesus was walking on ahead of them and they were amazed and those who followed were fearful. Pause there. Why were some amazed? Because they're walking into a deadly, scary situation and Jesus 
has his face set like flint, like he's unflinching, he's determined. And they're amazed by his courage and amazed by his uh, dedication. Why were some fearful? Because they know Jesus is walking right into the lion's den. All the people who want to kill him, this is where they are, right? This is the center of religious activity in the nation of Israel. Jesus is going right into this place, these people that want to kill him. Let's continue verse 32. And again, he took the 12 aside and began to tell them what was going to happen. Now, listen to these words, how specific he's going to be in what he's about to go through. Verse 33. Behold, we're going up to Jerusalem and the son of man, that was Jesus' um, most used title for himself. The son of man will be delivered to the chief priests and the scribes. Okay, those were his enemies. And they will condemn him to death and they will hand him over to the Gentiles. Why did they hand him over to the Gentiles? Because they did not have the power of capital punishment. Only the Romans did. So he'll be handed over to the Romans. They will mock him and spit on him and scourge him and kill him. And three days later, he will rise again. It's like he, he, he just, he read it. He read, read their mail. Like this is a prediction. Exactly how he said is exactly how it's going to come out. And this is only about a week before the events would have happened. They're going up to Jerusalem, right? Why didn't they get it? Because it didn't make sense to them. Why didn't it make sense to them? Because it's upside down from their perspective. You see, when you live long enough in an upside down world, right side up things start sounding upside down. You follow that? And so Jesus is saying, listen, I don't know if you caught the prophecies in Isaiah about the suffering servant, but the Messiah's got to die. The Messiah's got to suffer for the sins of many. And they're like, "Uh uh-uh. No, no, no. Messiah doesn't do that. Kings don't do that. People of high position and high power, like you, Jesus, don't do that. They can't hear it because their mindset is inverted. Let's keep on going. Verse 35. James and John the two sons of Zebedee came up to Jesus saying, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. And he said to them, What do you want me to do for you? Then they said to him, Grant that we may sit, one at your right and one at your left in your glory. Pause right there. What's going on here? These brothers did not understand anything Jesus had just said. Jesus is talking about his glory is a cross. And they're like, Hey, when you come into that glory... Can we be on your right and your left? Now, there are going to be men on his right and his left on that cross, right? James and John don't want any part of that, right? They're they're not getting it. And there's a lot of irony in what they're asking for here. Let's look at how Jesus responds. 38, Jesus said to them, this is the understatement of the text. You do not know what you are asking. (laughs) Are you able to drink the cup that I drink? Or be baptized with the baptism with which I'm baptized. Let me just pause right there. Those two images. The cup meant the cup of wrath. This is Old Testament imagery of the cup of wrath that God, you know, because of the sin of mankind, has been stored up in this cup. Who's going to drink the cup? Jesus will. Remember in the Garden of Gethsemane? Father, if there's any way that you take this cup from me, That's the same cup. Jesus is saying, listen, are you ready to drink the cup of wrath? Now, baptism is not the Christian baptism that we think of or even John's baptism that Jesus had been baptized in. This is just a metaphor for an overwhelming experience. So the common way they would use the Greek word baptizo is you're underwater, you're overwhelmed, you've been flooded over. Both of these, the cup and the baptism, are references to the suffering that is to come. And Jesus is saying, are you ready for this? Verse 39, in their 
ignorance, they said to him, I added that part, by the way, ignorance, we are able. Yeah, right, they're able. Now, here's the interesting thing that happens. Jesus said to them, the cup that I drink, you shall drink and shall be baptized with the baptism with which I'm baptized. Now, not to the full extent, but they're going to die just like he will, right? The, the end fate of every single one of those disciples is death, martyrdom. James is actually the first of the 12, or if you count Judas, but James is going to be the first of the 12 that's martyred. John is going to be the last of the 12, but they're all going to be killed. So Jesus is saying, yeah, you're going to suffer all right. But, verse 40, to sit on my right or on my left, this is not mine to give, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared. Now, the irony in this is rich. They're saying, we want honor. And the honor looks like sitting at your right and your left. We, we want to be the, 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 uh, the chief of staff, you know, and the vice president. Because we believe you're going to be king and you're going to rule over everything and we want a piece of that. Jesus is saying, listen, you, you don't know what you're talking about. You misunderstand. The honor that I'm going to achieve, at, at least at first, is the honor of sacrificial death. And, and you don't, you're not ready for that. You don't know what you're talking about. You will taste it, but you're not ready for it yet. That's what's happening here. Now, you get to 41, and this is the least surprising verse in the text. Hearing this, the ten began to feel indignant with James and John. Well, I guess so. Like, they're asking for the key spots, right? You know, it's like, um, you know, they got the, the, the birthday cake. They're ready to celebrate, right? And then who grabs the best piece with the best icing, right? You're going to jump in there and just grab it. It's like they're going to have the key positions. They're all mad at the brothers. Now, Jesus is going to call them all together in verse 42 all the twelve, calling them to himself, Jesus said to them, you know that those who are recognized as rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great men exercise authority over them. Pause. He's describing the upside-down kingdom. And listen what he does to 43, in 43. But it is not this way among you, but whoever wishes to become great among you shall be your servant, and whoever wishes to be first among you shall be slave of all. Now, we get here to the problem. The problem with Jesus' right-side-up kingdom is that none of us want to be a servant. The problem with Jesus' right-side-up kingdom is all the people that he would invite into, want to invite into the kingdom, don't want to be in that kingdom. We don't want to lay down our lives. We don't want to suffer. We don't want to be a slave. We don't want to be a servant. In other words, you could say it this way. In our upside-down world that seems right-side-up to us, if you're tracking with me, in our world, self-sacrifice, suffering, and death are not things to be embraced, but they're objects of shame. They're objects to be rejected and scorned. The values of this kingdom that we live in, power, influence, and strength, directly conflict with the values of what Jesus is saying is actually the true right-side-up kingdom. This is a problem for people who are selfish. This is a problem for people who are sinful. We will never on our own embrace the right-side-up kingdom because it goes against the grain of everything we want in life. It's the exact opposite of it. That's the problem for us with the right side up kingdom. We would never choose it on our own. And these disciples 
Man, they're, they're following this man that will suffer, and they don't yet get it. And when push comes to shove, they will not follow him to death, will they? Not until after the resurrection. I'm getting ahead of myself. That's the problem with the right-side-up kingdom. Number two, let's talk about the call to live in the right-side-up kingdom. You've just heard it, verses 42 to 44. Jesus is saying you've got to become a servant. If you want to you know, be in this kingdom, you've got to become a slave. We said that the problem with this is nobody wants it. But Jesus is calling us to something that we don't want. Why would he do that? Why would he call us to something that completely is the opposite of anything and everything we really want out of life? To be well taken care of. To not have to suffer. To be comfortable. Why would Jesus call us to something that's the exact opposite of all those things? Only because he knows something we don't know. And what is that? That in our fallen states, we have drifted far from God's intention for us. And so therefore, in our drift, we are missing out on fullness of joy. I think this is what Jesus is calling these disciples to. They just can't hear it because it sounds so backwards to them. It sounds so upside down, so inverted to them. Now, I find it very interesting that recent research and, you know, sociologists and psychologists, there's beginning to be a consensus around what creates happiness. And by the way, this is not Christian research. This is not uh, any kind of religious research. This is secular research. And what they're finding is, actually, the pursuit of happiness does not lie in the path that you think it does. It's, it's not about getting more money. It's not about, you know, bigger, better, more. It's not about, you know, how many relationships can you have in your life and all these kinds of things. And you see that played out just logically with, with people that, you know, celebrities that have it all and are still terribly unhappy. But even for us, you know, us peons that, that aren't super wealthy and don't have nice cars and all these other things, if you're trying to go after happiness, research suggests the way to happiness, you ready for this, is by serving other people. Now, this is secular research. The happiest people are those that are pouring their lives out for other people. This has nothing to do with Jesus, at least from their perspective, it doesn't. Very interesting research, right? Now, here's what's incomplete about it, though. Let's say you read these studies, you read this research, and you say, aha, I really want to be happy. So I'm going to go serve somebody. And, and you go and you find someone to serve, and all along, your motivation is actually not out of care for that person, not out of love for that person. Deep down, you don't really care about that person. You're trying to get something for yourself. And you say, if the means to the end of happiness is by serving this other pe person, then that's what I'm going to do. You see, if you try to pursue happiness through service for your own benefit, you're not actually serving them. You're serving you. It becomes like the dog trying to chase his own tail. It's like you're never going to get there. It's like, I want to be happy, so let me serve. No, actually, that's not service. True service is birthed out of love. That's what actually leads to the happiness. It's not the service that does it. It's the love that bubbles over into service. So I think the research is helpful. It's getting us in the right direction, but it's actually incomplete. The heart of service is unselfishness, not selfish pursuit, you see. Now, here's why this is so important. 
it's critical that you understand that Jesus is calling you to something that you cannot do apart from him. You knew that last part was coming, right? If you think that what Jesus is just saying is you need to serve a little bit more, you, you, you need to, you know, you've got this portfolio of things and you're a little bit low on the service level, so start serving your wife a little better, start serving your neighbor a little bit better, start serving your kids a little bit better, and, and, and then, you know, then you're going to be living in the, in the right side up world. That's not actually what Jesus is saying. He's not saying that. He's not talking about, you know, go ahead and serve a little more. You know what he's talking about? A total transformation of your identity. He doesn't say, go serve a little more. He says, become a servant. Big difference. Big difference. Do you know how you can tell whether or not you're a servant? You're a servant if it doesn't bother you to be treated like a servant. Nobody wants that. So here's what's true of a lot of us. Right? We pour ourselves out for our kids. We pour ourselves out for our families. Maybe our, our, a brother or a sister, maybe a neighbor. Maybe you're just sort of wired altruistically and you're just always helping people. But here's what happens. When you don't get a thank you, when you don't get recognized even a little bit, you're not satisfied in that. And what happens over time, you serve, 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 thanklessly, thanklessly, thanklessly. Eventually, the resentment builds up. The bitterness builds up. Man, doesn't anybody appreciate me around here anymore? Does my husband understand all that I'm doing? He doesn't. Does he even care about me? Does he see me? No. Are you serving your family? Well, yes and no. Right? There's some other motivation that's going on, and this is true for all of us. No one likes to be treated like a servant. So all this is going on in the background. You need to understand Jesus is calling you to something that is beyond you. You cannot become a servant on your own because you don't want to. It is not in you. Now here's where we are. I'm going to summarize and then move forward to the third point. Jesus is saying the key to right side up living is to become a servant. None of us want to become a servant because it flies in the face of our core motivation as fallen human beings, which is self-centeredness. So what are our options? First option, we can ignore the call of Jesus to live right side up in an upside down world. And we can ignore it because it either just doesn't seem right to us, it seems inverted to us, or we can ignore it because we don't actually believe that what Jesus was commanding applies to us. Or we can ignore it because it's just it's impossible. It's too hard. I can't be a servant. I can't lay down my life like this. I can't be a slave of all, not with a lot of bitterness. Option number one, you can ignore the call to be a servant. Option number two, you can try harder to change. You can try to will yourself into becoming a servant. But the problem with that, we've already talked about, as long as you're motivated by some self-seeking gain, so I want to be happy, so I'm going to serve, or I want to have a better conscience, so I'm going to serve, or I feel guilty, I'm not serving my family enough, so let me serve, or I want, I want to just be a good person, I want to be a good Christian. The pastor says, i got to serve, so let me serve. What's actually happening here 
is your own sense of well-being, your own sense of accomplishment is what you're after. You're actually using other people for your own end. And, and, and you know, some of you are going to argue with me about this, but I think in the inner recesses of your heart, that's actually what's going on because we are fallen, self-centered people. So what's the answer? We don't want to ignore the call of Jesus. We can't try harder to change. It doesn't work. What's the answer? This is where our theology intersects with the practical side of Christian living. And this is the third point. There is only one way into the right side up kingdom. It's in verse 45. Jesus says, For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, and to give his life a ransom for many. A couple observations on this. Number one, don't miss the fact that Jesus isn't just calling them to something and then say, well, you know, while you serve, I'm going to go, you know, do something else. (laughs) Jesus is saying, no, what I'm calling you to is the whole purpose that I've come. Now, your next thought is probably, okay, he's leading by example. And he's saying, I'm going to give you an example for you to follow. No, 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 no. He's doing something much more profound than that. That's what this idea of ransom is all about. Now, it's an interesting word, the Greek word for ransom, used only two times in the New Testament. It refers to a sum of money that was given to set a prisoner free, or in sometimes a slave who was released through, he, he essentially purchased, right, and released. Something was exchanged for something else. So on the one side of the ledger, we have the life of Jesus. On the other side of the ledger, we have us. We have our freedom. Jesus says, I've come to be a ransom, to pay that price. And this is where our theology, the theology of substitutionary atonement comes in. It's exchange language. I will trade this for the other. Jesus gave his life in exchange for the release of the prisoners. Now, what do we need to be released from? Sin and death, right? That's what we're enslaved to. We've got to be released from sin and death. What kind of sin? Ultimately, it's selfishness. Ultimately, all sin is rooted in I want, I need. Did you catch the question of the disciple, of the brothers to Jesus? They said, teacher, we want you to give us whatever we need. Y'all, do you see how upside down that is to go to God and say, God... We want you to give us whatever we need. You see how inverted that is? That is exactly how we all approach God. It's like, God, just give, give, me, give me this. Just give me what I need. I want you to give me whatever I ask for. You might not say it that way, but that's sort of all in us, right? Now, how does Jesus respond to that question? So graciously. Like, he he doesn't strike them down for being so selfish and daring to ask God and demanding. Instead, he says, what are you asking for? They make their request, and he says, listen, you don't actually know what you're asking for. You don't actually want what you're asking for. Like, think about how that plays out in our lives. We ask God things, we say, he's not answering. I think sometimes he's saying, you don't actually know what you're asking for. So we trust him. Now, I, I got off on a tangent there, but I want to go back to the core idea here, which is our root sin is selfishness. This is what Jesus has come to set us free from. 
He's offering a ransom so we can be free from sin, which ultimately leads to death. Now, how does this idea of ransom work? Why, I'll put it this way, and this gets into some deep theological territory, but, but, but I'm going to keep it at a level that we, we, we can uh, engage in. Why was a substitution necessary? Not long ago, we were having dinner with our kids, and we were talking about the idea that Jesus was the sacrifice, that he was the, the, the Passover lamb, like in the Passover. And Ansley, our 12-year-old, said, why couldn't God just say, you're just all forgiven? If God can do anything... Couldn't he have just said, you're forgiven, and, and Jesus wouldn't have to die? And, you know, we got into this very helpful, uh, I hope it was helpful, it was helpful for me. <laughs> but, but we were talking about these things to a 12-year-old and a 9-year-old and a 6-year-old, and I realized I've got to explain this in some language that, that's not so, you know, you know theologically deep, because, you know, we could have talked about atonement theory and all these things like this. But, but, but here's where we come to is this idea substitutionary sacrifice is always at the core of life-changing love. Okay, let me explain what we mean by this. Love that really transforms, and this is just true across the board, right? Love that really transforms always requires sacrifice. There's always someone who is the person doing the loving that is absorbing some inconvenience or some pain or some suffering for the sake of the person being loved. Anyone who's ever made a difference in your life gave something of themselves so that you could be transformed. The clearest example of this is in parenting. All of us either are parents or we had parents or have parents. We can all identify with this parenting analogy. Think about it this way. Children don't enter the world with their needs met. Right? Understatement. They come in needy. They come in desperate. They, they, they come in empty, so to speak. And if they're not given their needs, like if someone doesn't inconvenience themselves to meet the needs of this child, they will not develop. You know, either literally, physically, or certainly not emotionally. They will not be transformed from immaturity and demandingness and neediness to independence and maturity. That transformation will never happen. That transformation is called parenting. Now, if you want a child to develop fully into a fully functioning, healthy, mature adult, it's actually very, very simple. All you have to do is kiss your life goodbye for about 18 years. Amen. That's all it takes, right? You're changing diapers. You're getting up in the middle of the night. You're sacrificing your money. You're sacrificing your sleep. You're sacrificing your energy. You don't get to go on the kind of vacations you want. You don't get to enjoy the kind of movies that you want. You don't get to do what you want to do on your time stage. But here's the key idea. Either you will pay or they will pay. Either you will make the sacrifice as they grow up or they will make the sacrifice because they never do grow up. This is the kind of love that transforms. It always requires a substitutionary sacrifice. I will suffer for you to be transformed. Now, Mark 10.45 is the key verse in the entire Gospel of Mark. It's the only time Jesus ever explicitly states why he has come. 
This is the verse. Here's what he's saying. I have come to be a substitutionary sacrifice so that you might be set free from sin, so that you might be set free to live right side up. You're never going to do it until somebody pays the price for you to set you free of your selfishness to fill your empty tank, to help you transform over time from dependence and immaturity to maturity. This is what happens through the gospel. The only way you will ever be able to love sacrificially is if you first receive sacrificial love. The deficit and emptiness inside of your heart that clamors to be seen and clamors to be filled has been seen. It has been filled by your creator. That's why Jesus came. His life in exchange for your life. You have been loved, therefore you can love. You have been served, therefore you can serve. And that's the only way that you will begin serving. That's the only way you can begin living right side up in an upside down world. Now, we're going to tangibly experience this this morning through the Lord's Supper. And Go ahead and invite the ushers to come down and start passing this out. And I'm going to ask you all to multitask. While that tray comes to you, take the cracker, take the juice, but keep listening to me and don't eat it and drink it yet. Now, the table this morning is open to all who have put their trust in Jesus Christ. And I want you, as you're receiving these elements, I know there's a lot going on in the room, but just see if you can still say dialed in here because I've got another thought that I think is going to really help bring this home for us. I want you to think about the events that happened about a week after this conversation with the disciples going up to Jerusalem. Because what we find out is this conversation wasn't enough for them to get it yet. Right? They're still selfish. They're still upside down. We know that because when the going gets tough, they flee away from Jesus and they run and they hide and they let him die alone. They didn't get it yet. But the last night that Jesus had with them, he embodied his message in Mark 10, 45. He literally lived it out. He took a towel, he wrapped it around himself and he began to wash their feet. The creator of the universe washing the dirty feet of the disciples. He was saying, listen, remember what I told you? I have come to be a servant, not to be served. This is what this is going to look like for you. I've got to wash your feet. And he begins to wash their feet. You remember what happens when he gets to Peter? He gets to Peter. And uh, this, is in, this is in John 13. So he came to Simon Peter and Peter said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? Jesus answered and said to him, what I do now you do not realize, but you will understand hereafter. Peter said to him, check this out, never shall you wash my feet. Now, here's what's happening with Peter at this moment. Peter's essentially saying, Jesus, you don't need to stoop to this level. You're not below me. I'm below, I'm below you. I, I can't get washed by you. Listen to what Jesus says in response. Jesus answered him, If I do not wash you, you have no part with me. So listen, what Peter wanted to do is he thought he could serve without first being served. He thought he could be about this mission. He could, he could love other people, serve other people without himself first being loved, without himself first being served by the creator of the universe. And Jesus is saying, Peter, you're dirtier than you know. 
unless I serve you, unless I fill you, unless I give to you, you will not be filled to the place of being able to serve others and love others. And then after the meal, Jesus shows them one more illustration, and this was the most powerful of all. He took the bread, he took the cup, and I want you now just to have that in your hand. We're finishing up and passing these. And we're going to partake of these in a minute together. But Jesus took the bread. And I want you to take the bread right now. And this is what Jesus told his disciples. He said, listen, this represents my body, which is going to be broken for you. Now, that's an interesting symbol. But then what does Jesus say next? He says, eat it. Now, it's kind of weird. You you want us to eat your body? What is Jesus saying? He says, listen, I'm a a living meal for you. In other words, if if you do not partake of what I'm offering you, you will not be filled. You will be so hungry that you'll never be able to serve other people because you're only going to use them to get your own needs met. So eat and eat the meal that will satisfy your need. And so we, this morning, we eat this bread representative of the substitution the love that we needed, that we were given through Christ. Let's eat together. And after that, Jesus took the cup and he lifted it up and he said, this cup is my blood. It will be shed for you. I want you to drink it. We need to drink that. Jesus was saying, you don't understand how thirsty you are. And if you don't drink and be satisfied and have your thirst met by my substitute love for you, you're going to go through the rest of your life thirsty. And you're going to be using other people to make your thirst satisfied. And you'll never be able to serve and you'll never be able to love. So drink, Jesus said. And have your thirst satisfied. And so we drink. Our Father, we receive what you have given to us through your Son, Jesus Christ. We allow Him to serve us, and we allow Him to love us, and we allow Him to substitute His life for us because it's the only way out. It's the only way out of our sin. It's the only way out of the judgment that we deserve. It's the only way out of our selfishness. We're so selfish because we're so thirsty. And yet you have given us this cup to drink and this bread to eat. May we be satisfied by the love of our creator for us. In Jesus' name, amen.